When director Carol Reed decided to do a film set in post-war Vienna, World War II was still just a few years away. His film The Third Man featured a confused Joseph Cotton wandering around in the ruined city of Vienna in search of the elusive Harry Lyme, played by that one and only Orson Welles. The film also featured the wonderful Alida Valley and Trevor Howard, smartly dressed in an impossibly cool duffel coat, and a soundtrack drenched in Anton Cara's characteristic Harry Lyme theme. All of these ingredients helped to contribute to the film's success, but I believe the actual setting was very important too. The ruined post-war Vienna, ravaged by Allied bombings, was the perfect backdrop for this tale of deceit and shady characters. For Carol Reed, it was rather easy to use these settings since he shot the film in post-war Vienna. Whenever he needed a scene with a ruined house, all he and his cinematographer Robert Krasker had to do was to turn the camera to any of the ruins that surrounded them. Today, it's not that easy. When we see scenes of ruined cities from World War II in movies, those effects are usually digital. Visual effects. We saw a bunch of them in The Monuments Men the other year, for example. And in a brand new film from acclaimed German director Florian Henkel von Donnersmark, Never Look Away, we see both the bombings of Dresden and the aftermath of those bombings. Goodbye Kansas delivered those and other effects for the film, and today the yellow brick road will lead us to Dresden, the film Never Look Away, and the VFX production for it. <laughs> Hi everybody, I'm Nils Lagerén and this is Yellow Brick Road, your friendly little podcast about movies, games and visual effects. Yes, today we're going to talk about Florian Henkel von Donnersmark's new film Never Look Away, a film that has been selected as Germany's entry for Best Foreign Language Film at the 91st Academy Awards. Say hello to my guests, VFX supervisor Ben White and art director and environmental supervisor Raf Morant from Goodbye Cancer Studios in London. Welcome guys. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So, since none of you have been here before, let's start with some introductions. Ben, how did you find your way into this wonderful world of visual effects? Uh, well, thanks for asking. Uh, I definitely, as a kid, had a kind of fascination with how things work. I would look at an object or um, part of nature. How, why is the sky blue? How does a rainbow come into being? I was always fascinating with those ideas. And I think that kind of encapsulates where I ended up with, which is a combination of sort of art and science. Hmm. And it's a blend of those two things. Um, and I had a little uh, secondhand camera when I was quite young and I used to spend my pocket money on uh, throwaway uh, slide films. So I would take little pictures with my camera and I got quite used to looking through a lens at, from, from quite a young age. I'm quite old, so when the first Star Wars came out, I was just the right age, I was about seven, and I loved the film. But the thing that really struck me was I saw a making of and they explained how they made the land speeder fly. This mm. is the full-size one with them in. Yeah. It's actually just going in a circle on a big boom arm and the camera's in a circle and because they all line up the ah. the uh, all of the mechanical stuff that holds it up is just hidden behind the actors and I just thought that was the best thing it was almost more magical than if they made a real flying car because it was such a brilliant trick yeah Uh, so that really got me excited. And then I really fell in love with stop motion. And I used to record it off the television. Channel 4 used to show a lot of really good stuff and I had piles of videotapes. But there was definitely a key moment for me, which was the Pixar movie Luxo Junior, mm. which was their kind of breakthrough, um, John Lasseter's kind of Oscar-winning piece. And it was the first time that computer graphics had actually had soul. And it's a mother and child scene, two um, angle poise lamps mm. and a ball beautiful storytelling, very, very simple. And that switched something in my head to say, okay, this is everything that I love about stop motion, but somehow it's got something new, something different, bit science-y, bit arty. And 
you can do things that you could never do in stop motion. Now, obviously, they still have different aesthetics, and I, and I love stop motion for what yeah. it was. But that really uh, set, set me on the path. So fast forward quite a long time, I managed to get into the industry as a more mature student. I left school at 16, and I started working at the mill in commercials as a generalist. Mm. And back then, most people were generalists. The specialist nature is very much a part of the fact that we all now do big feature films, and you need to have specialists, but we were all... Um, came up with a kind of lot of different skills so I would do a bit of everything and and I moved from there into Mill Film which was just beginning so I was very very lucky to be part of the crew which did Gladiator which was one of my first uh, Mm. projects we had an amazing time doing it and it was a sort of pivotal moment for for London and for us and it was a great privilege to to work on it what we do in life And then I progressed through um, from a number of different companies. I was at Framestore for about 11 years, starting off as more of a generalist. And then as is inevitable, really, got a bit more specialist. So I started doing creature rigging and animation, then moved into lighting, look dev, and eventually sort of CG supervised. And then after that, I moved off to um, MPC and VFX supervised, and now I'm at Goodbye Kansas. So it's been an interesting journey. Mm. I'm very glad that I was able to be involved in that part of the industry because although it's amazing what you can do now, it has changed quite a lot, and the way that people come into the industry is, is slightly different. But that's my yeah. story. And driven by passion, always. Very much so, yeah. And it's this art and science thing. I, I love that. You know, any big facility that does visual effects, you can't do without both of those skill sets. You need people that are super scientific, you need people that are incredibly artistic, and you need everybody in the middle. And I love working with that kind of spectrum of people. They're all so different and interesting. So that's what that's what drives me. It's a good description of visual effects, I think. Art and science. Yeah. That's like. And you, Raf, how did you start? Um, yeah, I mean, similar f- uh, from a very early age, uh, had a passion and uh, intense interest in art and drawing, illustration, understanding light and, yeah, just kind of sp- spatial aesthetics. And then I think, again, like a whole generation of VFX artists that in... 1977, 79, when the Imperial Cruiser <laughs> f- uh, flies over at the top of Star Wars, yeah. you know, one of those VFX arts, you know, it's that, changed that's, many that, lives. they say that's when a whole <laughs> generation on. was born of, yeah. of, of VFX artists. So, uh, yeah, I was part of that breed. Um, and then, yeah, then I was really hooked on visual effects and in 1980 I lived in the southwest of England uh, in 1980 I made my first journey up to London and went to Forbidden Planet and got the first edition of Cinefix um, which I still have Ooh, valuable <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's, yeah it's kind of in a hermetically sealed case yeah. um And yeah, also started to build a collection of books like the Star Wars sketchbook and uh, books by concept artists like uh, Sid Mead, who was behind all the um, designs for Alien and the first Blade Runner, and who had a very practical approach to sci-fi concept. You know, stuff had to look like it had been made, like it had to work. Mm. So... That was something that I was very almost obsessively passionate about as a child. Um, living in the, the West Country, there wasn't much of a VFX industry. Uh, it was all over in California mainly at the time with ILM. So I sort of pursued a more traditional medium for several years, um, working with airbrush illustration and sort of traditional oils, portraits, landscapes. Um, and then, yeah, fast forward, came to London, uh, went to Central St. Martin's, did a fine art degree in film and fine art. And then on graduating, pretty much went full circle back into VFX, started working at smaller, uh, more boutique-sized facilities such as Nexus Films, Peerless, and then on to the big facilities, MPC and Framestore for a number of years. I was lucky enough to work on some really great projects. Danny Boyle's Sunshine, Sweeney Todd mm. came in right in at the great time and came right in at the beginning of Game of Thrones. Um, so got to concept and design the castles such as Winterfell, Red Keep wow. and the Baby Dragon on the first season. That's really something. Dracarys. 
<laughs> He'll be able to feed himself from now on. Um, did that alongside James James Sutton, who is now uh, CG Soup um, at Goodbye Kansas, where mm. both Ben and myself are, obviously. Um, after that, went on to Monuments Men, which, uh, again, was another war film directed by George Clooney. And then more recently got to work with uh, on a George Clooney project again with Goodbye Kansas uh, with Suburbicon. Oh, yeah. Which pretty much brings us up to now. Welcome to Suburbicon, a town of great wonder and excitement. Hey there. So let's talk about Never Look Away by the German director with that long and beautiful <laughs> name, Florian Henkel von Donnersmark, who... Uh, you out there might have heard of since he directed and wrote the film The Life of Others that won an Oscar for Best Foreign Language Picture a couple of years ago. Really good film. Well, ben, what can you tell us about his new film, Never Look Away? Well, um, it's inspired really by the life of, of Gerhard Richter. The story really focuses on uh, the art student Kurt Barnett. And uh, as a child, he's traumatized by seeing the bombing of Dresden. And then he uh, becomes an artist and forms a relationship with this young woman, not knowing that her father is a rather devious character and actually has been the mastermind behind uh, some eugenics programs and some quite disturbing things. So it's really his story. Mm. Uh, it's an artist growing up during the war, surviving it, and then his experiences as, as a consequence. Sie nicht weg. Nie wegsehen, Kurt. Alles, was wahr ist, ist schön. Tante Elisabeth, du blutest. When were you contacted about doing the VFX work for the film? So uh, last year, uh, Quirin Berg, who was one of the producers of the movie, and Simon Giles, who's the um, independent visual effects supervisor looking after the movie, um, came to Goodbye Kansas, and they'd actually shot the film already. Mm. Um, and they just came in for some early discussions about how to approach some of the key sequences that would need visual effects. It's an independent film, so this is not full of big... Um, showy moments, but clearly the actual bombing of Dresden and the aftermath of that was a key sequence for them. Yeah. And they came in just to talk about how that might be approached. And the initial discussions led to RAF starting to put together a pack of some ideas of trying to inform some of these um, key sequences, um, specifically the bombing itself, the destroyed city afterwards and what it might look like, and a couple of key moments, one of which involves a bus of, of innocent people and their unfortunate demise. Mm. So that was really the springboard for the development. Yeah. So, so there weren't that many shots? Not that many, no. I mean, uh, relatively low count for a company like us is probably only about 30 to 40 shots, but mm. some of them were really, really complicated to do. Yeah. Um, the destruction of the bridge, which collapses onto the bus, and particularly complicated shot. And again, some of the larger environment shots, as the camera jibs up, you show an entire city of these destroyed shapes. Yeah. So it takes a great deal of, of, of planning and care and design to make sure that, that they work. Uh, how, how big was your team? Wasn't that many people. Um, small but perfectly formed is, uh, is the way I <laughs> described it. Probably only about 15 people um, working over about a three or four month period. But again, it was a relatively small movie. Um, art house and independent movies generally have quite uh, small appetites for visual effects. Yeah. So yeah, it was much smaller than some but of the we shows. we love them anyway. We do. Yeah. Uh, let's walk through some of the effects uh, you did for the film. Uh, you mentioned the bombing of Dresden and the aftermath. So let's start there. What, what was the creative brief for that sequence? Well, Florian and Simon um, didn't want, even though the scenes of the destruction of Dresden were horrific and just incredibly overpowering, a lot of the time he wanted more this sense of detachment, for example, when the family is on the hill viewing the droves of bombers going over and the destruction of Dresden. He, Florian, and as was communicated by Simon, didn't want it to be showy and in your face. It wanted to be um, almost like a sense of watching a, a distant raging thunderstorm but on the horizon. Mm. So there was a slight sense of detachment and an almost dreamlike, you know, as though the family and particularly the, the protagonist... Um, small boy, you know, wasn't sure if it was a dream, and a bit like when you when you watch a raging thunderstorm, there's a delay 
yeah. and a feeling of separation from when you see the lightning and you hear the the explosion. So, so how do you approach that then? Do you do like concepts of it? Yeah, so, style frames? Um, well, I mean, the other aspect of the approach was to do the research. Mm. Um, the bombing um, happened over two nights in 1945. It was 722 English bombers, 527 American bombers. That's a lot. Uh, dropping 3,900 tonnes of high explosives. Mm. And Dresden, before the bombing, a very beautiful, architecturally beautiful city, bustling with life. And then again, looking at the reference imagery, the well, the reference photographs from the time, the, that beautiful city was just levelled with the only thing still standing, again, with this slightly surreal quality, and there's a surreal quality in the actual archive photographs of these just like the skeletal frames of the buildings or anything that wasn't wood and wouldn't collapse from yeah. fire was left standing. And again, there's like a slightly surreal covering of ash over everything. Mm. Um, so in terms of approaching that, because it involved a, an amount of architecture, um, started with some very simple CG to, you know, get the basic perspective and, and layout and then augmented that with digital paint and kind of worked it up into quite painterly concepts to convey the feeling and start to establish the sort of compositions. Hmm. And those are great. It's always good to obviously have a, a visual reference because at the beginning of any... Uh, visual effects process or any filmmaking process, there's a lot of ideas yeah. and uh, concepting and, you know, Raf has a particular passion for architecture and so he's able to express these drawings that are yeah. very, very useful things to be able to sit down with somebody and say, okay, this is what we're thinking of, is this where you're going? And as with any creative process, roughing out and trying to refine what you think the ideas need to be later on, such an important thing for us to mm. do because whether you're going to build a practical set or whether you're going to build a digital set, that's a lot of work, it takes a lot of hours and you've really got to try and help answer a lot of these creative questions up front before you get mm. into the work. Yeah. So these concepts are drawings, both of the feelings of what the, the bombing looks like from the hill and these close-ups mm. of the aftermath, incredibly useful uh, devices to have in, in the filmmaking process. Mm. And it's very much part of how we approach all of our work. Mm. What's quite important as well as part of that process is is very often, as with any aspect of filmmaking it's quite often about what you don't see yeah um rather than what you do so that can be established at the concept stage so you know or the distance that you actually want to to see something mm. again concepting is really useful to do that because otherwise okay well do we have to build like this city for close-up uh in detail or do we you know is it just shadowy shapes on the horizon yeah so yeah concepting is uh, very, very very essential but but you mentioned that the film was already shot when you were approached so so there were shots from these scenes already there were yeah i mean we can why don't we talk about some of the scenes in particular um yeah. the the bombing um the bombing moment of uh, the actual destruction mm. of dresden kurt is a young child in the film and he's asleep in his bed and his house is considered to be on the outskirts of Dresden, and he hears this strange noise, and he kind of wakes up in the middle of the night. There's this beautiful kind of surreal uh, blue moonlight. Um, the DOP uh, is a very, very respected veteran DMP called Caleb Deschanel, who, fact fans, is Derry Deschanel's um, dad. Really? Um, he's a <laughs> very, very respected and hugely talented guy. So the, the film has a very beautiful look because mm. of uh, Florian and his collaboration. So the, there's already a slightly eerie feeling and young Kurt looks out the window and there are all these planes flying over his house and he doesn't know what's going on. His family then gather in the garden and it's again, it's this sort of eerie, is it dusk, is it moonlight? You're not really sure what's going on. And there are these metal foils, twists of metal falling out of the sky, and there's just legions and legions and legions of planes coming again and again, and they're just still flying off towards the horizon. Yeah. And the scene, getting back to this idea of it being surreal and, and non-showy, it's all actually shot quite locked off. So they had filmed 
um, some background plates of essentially the correct location, yeah. but it didn't have any of the features in that was required. And the design for the sequence was really to keep it very still and get away from the kind of Hollywood style of how you would depict um, an attack. Mm. So it's, to me, it's about a child's v vision of what's going on and his confusion. What's bizarre is that the falling chaff and these legions of planes are almost quite beautiful in a way, although mm. the, what they're going to do is, is, is horrifying. Yeah. So they'd actually filmed some locked-off plates of the, of the hill. So we started out with that. Raff had worked up a concept of from a distance point of view, what were we were expecting to see there. And so we started to use the conventional techniques of CG. Um, we had CG uh, bomber, which we made, we used at Lancaster. Mm -hmm. um, and this is a really important point to note. You know, on visual effects movies, you become a mini, a mini expert in really specific details about something to do with the world, and you normally forget about it. Mm. So Raf was able to rattle out all these incredible details about how many planes they were and what time yeah. they flew. And we always want that, but what you'll sometimes find is that that just doesn't make a good image and it doesn't give the director what they want. Okay. So the number of planes that you'll see depicted in the film doesn't really represent what happened because it just didn't make sense. They flew at 8,000 feet, yeah. as a bomber would do, because mm -hmm. you don't want to get shot down. Well, we put our planes at 8,000 feet and they were one pixel big, mm -hmm. and that's not a very striking shot. Mm -hmm. So that's something that we, we know very much, is that you always want to try and start with as much information about the real world and mm -hmm. what really happened, yeah. but then ultimately you're trying to create something for the director. Mm -hmm. It has to be a good image. Yeah, and it's well, not a documentary. No. Yeah, you're, it's telling a story. It's telling, yeah, it's telling a story. And we used a, a number of techniques. Obviously, we would model the plane in, in, in CG and use uh, techniques of shading and look dev to make it look photographic. They're generally quite silhouetted, but there are many, many, many thousands of them. So rather than hand animating them, um, we would use a procedural technique. So we had an effects artist using Houdini, which is a way of being able to procedurally generate many planes because there yeah. are so many of them, you couldn't do them by hand. So um, how many planes did you have? Oh, I can't remember. I think we t we had five layers. I think it was about 10,000. Hmm. There's loads more than there would really be. But yeah. the uh, the requests but from Florian again, were... It's, it's a he perceives It's a painterly thing. thing. Yeah. It's not real. It's, it's, it's a child's feeling. view. It's yeah, a child's exactly. feeling. It's... Mm. Um, and then again, the uh, the falling chaff. They photographed the family in the garden with some practical chaff, but obviously they can't fill the whole world. No. Chaff, by the way, is, um, yeah, what is that? strips of metal foil mm. that were dropped out of planes in the Second World War to um, disguise and confuse radar systems. So if you drop a big cloud of metal pieces into the sky, the radar will say, oh my God, there's a great big object there, and it makes it very hard for them to know mm -hmm. what's going on. So even that isn't really correct, because the planes are flying towards Dresden, everybody can hear them, there's no point in trying to confuse the radar, no. because everybody in Dresden mm -hmm. could go, oh my goodness, there's a load of bombers. So again, in, it, it looks good, yeah, but it doesn't necessarily yeah. make sense. In, in application, it was more they dropped the chaff... Um, over the radar stations on their route. Yeah. So when it's dropped near a radar, the radar can't sit, it doesn't know if there's a big squadron of planes going north over Berlin or, or not, because it basically takes out the radar. Yeah. So it's it was more how it was approached in that way. Yeah, it's like sticking a yeah. bag over a camera. Yeah, exactly. So they'd literally just dot the radars and then just put bags over them. Yeah. And the foil itself, again, they shot some uh, practically with the with the actors, which is great because it gives them something to work with. It gives the camera team, the director, everybody something to look at, but they clearly can't fill the whole world with, with chaff. Yeah. So again, an effects artist, um, Tim Stam, did a great job of creating a little simulation of what these metal strips with a cloth sim give a little metal shader, and then we were able to actually just drop hundreds of millions of pieces of that out of the sky wherever we wanted. So that, again, gave us this quite weird slowly eerie feeling. And that covers most of the first part of the scene, but obviously there's a lot of architectural work. So, Ralph, do you want to talk about how you and your guys created the city in what essentially was an empty plate of just a hill, wasn't it? Yeah, there were sort of three distances on the city. So there was the protagonist and his family's point of view uh, from the hilltop. And then the next day... In daytime, there was a large establishing shot in Dresden after the destruction. Mm. There wasn't even any smoke. It was literally this eerie plain of rubble and these slightly surreal skeletal buildings. Mm. Um, and then there were some close, very close-up shots low in the street. 
So we approach those with fairly detailed CG with a, a base texture on them. And then that was augmented with um, photographic elements and some digital paint, mainly by Philip, whose surname I still can't pronounce, even though he's on my team. Um, um, you use a kit of parts technique, don't you? Why don't you explain yeah, that to people? Who well, really yeah, I mean, we, we kind of got basic CG and, yeah, kind of put modules together for destroyed buildings and then lit those, which gave you your basic lighting, and then we'd create a, a, a still image that you'd augment in Photoshop using various digital matte painting, photographic elements and, and digital paint. And then that would be reprojected back onto the CG to add an extra level of detail and, and realism, which is sort of now a quite a sort of standard homogenised approach to digital matte painting. Um, digital matte painting now increasingly has become more and more sort of CG heavy. And I guess as CG becomes quicker and easier to achieve, it is slowly going more and more CG. You mentioned you're using images uh, both as inspiration and uh, photographic elements. in Yeah, movies. well, I mean, yeah, so there's the reference that we just trawled the internet for yeah. archive photos of Dresden. Uh, Simon uh, also acquired a lot of uh, photographic elements uh, at at the actual location uh, in Poland yeah. where they shot and um, a lot of the foreground elements were actually shot at this location so the foreground ruined buildings um, would be live action and then we'd use the photographic elements and then CG to... Um, create DMPs to fill in the background. Yeah, they, well, they did a great job. Um, they really did a good job of finding some some realistic foreground buildings, which were apparently just um, derelict and had been destroyed some time ago mm. um, in Poland. And the production design team went in there and cleared out of the sort of overgrown bits and bobs. So for the aftermath shots of the city, any of the foreground elements that are right in your face are all real buildings, which yeah. is, is obviously the best way to do things. And what combination we're doing, is always it's best. that combination because you want to give the film crew something to work with, the DP and the, the director something to obviously to light. The actors can react to something very nicely if they feel part of a scene. It really helps them to perform. And then what we're going to do is to extend that to the horizon and to add things that yeah. for money or just logistical reasons just just can't be done and there's a a couple of very good examples one of the final uh, environment shots that the team did is the camera jib up when the camera jibs up it just rises up it's a kind of classic filmmaking mm. technique when you want to show a big scene and it starts off with a horse and cart in this real destroyed foreground and then we raise up and we basically see all the way to the horizon and you can just see legion upon legion upon legion of these what we termed in the end skeletal buildings that was a big mistake, Skeletor. Not as big as the mistake you're about to make, He-Man. Skeletor was the term that the the director and the client really wanted to, this idea yeah. of just these frameworks of silhouette. Mm -hmm. um, and the guys did a really good job of, you know, if you think about a whole city, that's a lot of different buildings. Yeah. So using these kits of simple repeating buildings by rotating them and repositioning them, you can give the impression that you've got a lot more variety than you really have. And those are some very, very good techniques to use. Otherwise, But, but, but were they in 3D all the way? They were, yeah. yeah. Mm. So they would take yeah. simple um, destroyed buildings yeah. and they'd have 15 different ones, let's say, and they would just start to lay out streets mm. and make little groups of blocks and we would then duplicate those and just in order to give some variety, you would just take a little block of buildings and rotate them mm. or swap a couple. And you can give the impression that you've got all of the variety of a real city, but really what you're seeing are many, many, many copies of the same thing, but they're just all oriented and rotated mm -hmm. or painted slightly differently, and your mind just accepts it. Because yeah. ultimately, a city is quite a repetitive thing. It's not, yeah, it it's not uh, all completely unique, certainly for that era of architecture. It's a beautiful shot, and, and, and you really feel uh, the fact, I mean, 90% of Dresden was leveled, basically, by the yeah, So it's like, it really shows the extension six, of the um, structure. Six kilometers of the town centre. 
and it was very well documented, which actually helped us a lot. Yeah. Um, and the, we even actually found a few very rare colour photographs of people walking through the ruins. And they're mm. sort of, again, they're slightly beautiful, although they're depicting something tragic and awful. There's a sort of beauty to the colour of these old photographs, and it's yeah. just, you just don't, use, you're not used to seeing colour shots from that kind of era. But no. all of that stuff was incredibly helpful to inform what we were trying to do. Raf, you worked on The Monuments Men, a film that also featured lots of ruined cities. Yeah, that was a really enjoyable project to work on. Had the pleasure of working with uh, Angus Bickerton and directed by George Clooney. George Clooney's actually a, a very, a, as well as obviously being very much into the acting and script and story, uh, is also very quite visionary and, and has, a, has a really good eye for visual details. So there were two main environments that I worked on on that. There was 1940s Chicago, uh, specifically at the, uh, on, on the side of a sort of Art Deco high-rise at, uh, at the end of the Magnificent Mile, mm. and um, St. Lo in France, which, similar to Dresden, was a town completely levelled, uh, however, in the case of St. Lowe, it was, wasn't so much aerial bombardment, but it was a rail crossroads and was a key strategic point. Um, so it was mainly artillery and just on the ground battling between German and Allied forces that trashed mm. and, and levelled the town. Um, so on that, Angus, again, wanting to try and get as much in camera as possible and sort of take an approach that was homogenised, uh, more traditional film techniques using miniatures and in-camera elements and um, CG and digital map painting. Commissioned the building um, by the art department of uh, miniatures of the ruined buildings. So there's quite a, there's a sequence um, where they're in the middle of St. Lowe there's various conversations going on and all, all the surrounded ruined buildings were in fact miniatures that were, were put in behind. Um, and then there was a big establishing opening shot um, where the camera cranes up similar to our shot yeah. on on Dresden. And in the, we started with that actually. We, again, had to go, for, um, went through a number of concept iterations on that. Um, started with duplicating the miniatures and creating CG miniatures of buildings to, so there was a sense of a ruined city, um, but George's vision on it was that it should be more level. So we just yeah. kept coming up with iterations is no get rid of it get rid of it and 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 by the end i mean there's some buildings in the foreground but it's pretty much just a huge field of rubble and <laughs> i think you know I mean, but the impact of that was 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 great because you really got the sense that everything had just been leveled to the ground literally yeah, yeah. and you continued to work with george clooney uh, on suburbicon yeah yeah um yeah like very recently we just finished up on suburbicon um but there were no ruins in there were no ruins um this time um, it was and again george was uh had a very sort of clear idea visually um we were um we created it was 1950s suburbia with houses um that were pretty much you'd order houses from a catalogue and mm. and there'd be about five variants of I mean this is the reality of it or was the reality of it. So there were about five variants. So for that we did actually take a, a, a very CG heavy approach. And the great thing about Goodbye Kansas is that we, having worked at bigger facilities and more boutique facilities as artists there, we've got the freedom to work across different disciplines and to expand in different areas. But we've also got a very uh, sort of solid pipeline that generally you'd only find at a much bigger facility. Mm. So we were able to create, again, a sea of prefabricated 1950s houses uh, in CG, which mm. needed quite a, a robust pipeline to be able to 
achieve that. Yeah. Um, 100 miles of pipeline and all the independent producers of this great state. So let's get back to Never Look Away then. Uh, um, there's a scene, you mentioned it, Ben, about a bus being crushed under a crumbling tunnel and explosion. Uh, why was that shot so complicated? Well, yeah, that really was a tough one. Um, so that forms part of a montage. We've seen Kurt's family, and we were talking about that, standing in horror, the, the bombers flying over, and this is one of the few shots where we actually cut into the city to, to see what's happening. And again... You know, in a conventional film or a more uh, action-oriented film, you'd have the classic shot looking out of the bomb bay doors as the bombs fall away. And th- this film doesn't want to kind of go in that direction. So again, it's a very um, artful, simple way of portraying something horrific. Again, very beautifully lit. So you have this sort of strange contrast if you've got this very beautiful mm. scene and then all this carnage this breaks off. So we see uh, a, a, a bus full of innocent people travelling through the city and the bombers that we've seen arriving uh, are now dropping their horrific payload and so the bombs start to go off. So the bus driver comes into this little tunnel and unfortunately it's struck by a bomb and the tunnel collapses and, and crushes the bus and unfortunately kills everybody inside. The really complicated thing from a visual effects point of view is that you've got to do some proper physical-based destruction and simulation, and all of the components are connected to each other. So if you change one component, you have to change all of them. So let me just portray the scene. We've got a locked-off camera. We're looking through a tunnel, and this bus drives in, and halfway through the shot, the ceiling needs to come down and crush the bus. But Florian was very, very... um, key on the fact that he wanted to see the bus itself be crushed. He wanted to make sure that the debris didn't obscure the view initially of what's happening. Mm. And so they shot a real bus driving through a real tunnel and we had to essentially replace the entire uh, scene from the ground up in order to do a takeover. Mm. Takeover is for where we'll use live action up to a certain point and then we'll swap it yeah. for a digital version so that we can we can do our work. And the effects work was, was really hardcore stuff. Um, the team in Stockholm did an amazing job Um, so you've got to start off by destroying the the roof itself, mm-hmm. but again, it's got to be art directable. It can't just be we run a simulation and it looks like this. And it's one of the things that digital effects can offer over a practical approach. Although again, you always want both. Is that you can to some extent direct it. Mm-hmm. The irony about digital visual effects and simulations is the more realistic uh, simulation becomes, the less controllable it is. Which is a horrible irony, and the reason it's realistic is because it's being fed with super complicated equations about fluid dynamics and all these things. And once you factor them in, you stop being able to get it to do what you want. A classic thing in digital effects is somebody wants an object that's on fire that's travelling very fast. Objects that are on fire that travel very fast go out. They don't stay on fire because that's not how fire works. Someday, we could become friends. Friends who ride majestic translucent steeds shooting flaming arrows across the bridge of Hemdale. I would follow you into the mists of Avalon, if that's what you mean. So you have to deal with with these issues. So they then had to crumple the bus and time that to the pieces coming from the ceiling. And even the pieces coming from the ceiling, I think they had at least nine completely different simulations. So you've got dust, large debris, small debris, massive chunks, mm. clouds of very thick dust. And all these things have to come together into into one shot. And it was, it was a... It's again, it, it fits into this strange thing. It's a kind of beautiful thing to see, although you're seeing something horrific. Yeah. Um, and it has this giant cloud of dust that comes out, almost like a kind of symbolic cloak of death at the end that just mm. wipes into the camera. Cloak of death. Uh, it was, yeah, it was, it was, an, it was a really, really well, well yeah. carried out shot, and they really worked hard on it. I actually spoke with uh, Daniel Nolund, who was senior compositor at Gubbekansas in Stockholm, who, who worked on that shot. And he said that at one point he, he contemplated whether to maybe use uh, to include concrete steel in the rubble that falls down. But he wanted it to be correct, so, so he contacted some historians and architects. And based on the architectural style of the tunnel, they informed him that, no, at that time they didn't use... They wouldn't have had no. it, that's right, yep. Concrete steel, so it was actually like a wooden framework yeah. that was plastered. So, so how, how important is research like that when, when you do? Very effects, important. Right? I yes. mean, um, for the reasons that you mentioned. I mean, again, even just the crumpling of metal. How does metal crumple? Yeah. Okay, let's go find out. Mm-hmm. You need to you need to really understand what something looks like before you can try and recreate it digitally. Mm-hmm. So we found um, some great bits of clips, even just from uh, building sites where people are destroying uh, buildings. That was great to have clouds of dust and brick dust. What color is brick dust? What's appropriate to the time period? 
and I managed to, to find some very good extremely high speed film of a car with a bulldozer being dropped on top of it. Wow. And what's fascinating when you see that kind of destruction at really high speed is you can see pressure waves going across the surface before it crumples. Oh. So this first impact would happen. And in real speed, your eye can't take in what's going on. But in the real world, there are actually little waves, like water waves running across the surface. Oh, metal, so all of this stuff yeah. gets factored into to how we work. And, you know, as we've said, the ultimate goal is to feed that into something that looks strong and um, is conveying the director's vision, but also it has to be controllable. Yeah. So there's a point where we're going to go, okay, we don't need to do everything exactly like that, but I'm glad we know how it works, and that really empowers us to go and make an image that really fits what the shot's got to be about. So you become expert on, on all In these very small very subjects, small, and I subjects. always forget the information <laughs> two years later, so if you ask me what height the bombers flew in two years' time, I will definitely have forgotten that. <laughs> I mentioned The Third Man in the intro. That's another film featuring a ruined city, but, but that film was shot in actual World War II ruins, though, so it didn't feature any VFX as far as I know. But, but, but there are many, 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 many films featuring destruction of cities. So uh, let's talk a little about destruction effects. How have they evolved through the years? It's a really interesting topic and it's one that kind of encapsulates the history of visual effects yeah. because people have been trying to make uh, depictions of ruin and destruction for, for many, many years. And originally, I mean, Raf was talking about matte paintings. For those people that are not familiar with what that means, that literally used to be a large sheet of glass and oil paint would be applied or acrylic paint to the sheet of glass mm. that would then be photographed with a hole in it mm. and then they would re-expose the same film to, to put the two pieces together. So that technique's existed for a very, very long time, but it does come with certain limitations. If you look now at old matte paintings, they have a slightly wonky charm, but they don't necessarily look real. Mm. And one of the problems that you have is that you can't really move the camera. So then people started getting into using miniatures. If you think about some of the kind of, uh, although they're not necessarily war films, uh, Godzilla from 1954, anything that involves the destruction of cities, um, even some of the old Ray Harryhausen films that always seem to involve something getting blown or crumpled, um, you would use miniatures. And miniatures are a wonderful, wonderful technique and they, they still get used today, but they still have their challenges. Yeah. So one of the problems with miniatures is trying to maintain scale. Yeah. And when they are fully formed buildings, you can do a great deal with them and they look great because they're real. You can like them like a real set mm -hmm. and people like to film them. But if they need to fall down... A building that's three feet high does not fall down like a building that's no, 300 no. feet high. And that's that's where the techniques start to fall down. There is actually an equation that um, cinematographers use for multiplying the scale of the scene by the frame rate that they want, and you then have to film the miniature at a very, very, very high speed mm. to try and make mm. it look at the right size, and if it's falling down, it, it doesn't work. So mm. if you think about Ray Harryhausen, crashing rocks or any of that stuff, everything starts to take on this slightly weird slow motion effect. Water in particular just doesn't work yeah, below yeah. a certain scale. Mm. So by natural evolution, you then ended up in an era where digital effects were starting to become more prevalent about 25 years ago. And so you'd get hybrid films. So they'd have little bits of digital effects, little bits of miniatures, the nuclear destruction in Terminator 2 starts yeah. to have a combination of these things. Independence Day is a good combination yeah. of both miniatures mm. and digital to augment it. Mm. It's um, also worth noting as well the difference between the latter films and use of miniatures and the Ray Harryhausen times is with the Ray Harryhausen they generally were quite miniature, yeah, were whereas small. with the more recent like uh, Independence Day, they're pretty damn big miniatures. Yeah. How big was Chrysler Building, for example? Uh, pretty big. I mean, the yeah, one that I the, one that I knew like the height of a house. Probably. Yeah, they have yeah. to be really big, and they yeah. smoke the set very heavily. I mean, a really lovely term that they use. The Lord of the Rings was another really good example of mm. of a hybrid, and they actually coined the term bigatures because miniatures didn't mean anything because <laughs> yeah, they were exactly. so big. And they would use motion control cameras. Again, that's a technique that's kind of gone slightly out of fashion because it's expensive. Mm. Um, for those people that, that don't know what motion control is, it's a camera with a robot arm attached to it so that the camera can repeat the same move over the and over and over again. Movement, if you yeah. get a camera operator to walk through a set, they can never retrace their steps exactly. And to do miniature photography, um, you need to be able to film the same thing several times. So they use those techniques very well. And then you come up to the modern day, and because of um, the sort of never-ending increase in computing speed and power, you can now actually use 
proper scientific equations for fluid simulations and dynamics. So again, the team that worked on this bus shot are deploying very, very sophisticated techniques based on real-world physical simulations. Mm. And that's really only just become possible to do in the last five to ten years. And so you see a prevalence of entire continents going into the ocean and entire cities yeah. getting flooded. That stuff simply wasn't possible. But I think to close the loop, you still want to try and incorporate live-action elements when you can. And, you know, you don't want to do everything all digital unless no, you have I mean, to. Isn't it always best to have a combination? Definitely. And yeah. don't think anyone would, would argue mm. with that. And just as a side note, that story of the kind of evolution of computing and what's happened has also kind of democratised the visual effects process of what we do. So if there are people that are interested in getting into our industry. You can now, at home, on your family laptop, download not just similar, but the exact same software that the studios who create mm. big feature films will use. You can get mm. free versions for learning on. So that's been a lovely parallel, the fact that mm. this digital effects world has expanded and enabled us to blow up whole cities, but it's yeah. also allowing mm. people, if you're a teenager and you want to start trying to do this stuff, you can. And the web, there are lots of people that do forums and uh, free tutorials. So you can actually learn this stuff now. Uh, on the same tools, which I think is great because, you know, yeah. I'm old and when I was trying to learn, I didn't know anyone that did it. There was no internet. And so it took me about 10 years to get from wanting to do it to actually getting my hands on the yeah. equipment. But, I love but, the fact that you don't did, have to do did that Did you anymore. build miniatures when you did your... your I didn't your build miniatures. No, I was, I, was, I was obsessed with my CG. As soon as I saw Luxo, I was like, no, I want to do that. I actually built I a, a model of Istanbul for a film I did when wow. I was a teenager. How long did that take? It was made of shoeboxes and stuff, okay. uh, and it was, but it was like three meters wide or something. Impressive. Quite cute. <laughs> <laughs> and cut, print. We're moving on. That was perfect. Perfect. Uh, Mr. Wood, do you know anything about the art of film production? Well, I like to think so. That cardboard headstone tipped over. The, this graveyard is obviously phony. Nobody will ever notice that. Filmmaking is not about the tiny details, it's about the big picture. Back to Never Look Away. Uh, the film premiered at the Venice Film Festival and it will open in Germany now in October. Uh, have you had a chance to see it yet? Not as yet. No, no me neither. Um, I did get the opportunity to, to go to Berlin to see it, but I'm very busy on um, a delivery for another film project, so unfortunately I, was, I wasn't life. able to. I know. <laughs> Plus, it is, I'm sure it's a great film, but it would not have been uh, subtitled, I guess, because it is a German-language oh, yeah. film, and a three-hour German movie would have been quite difficult for me to... Uh, to understand the finer points. But when it comes out here, I will definitely go and <laughs> see totally it. I totally understand. But I mean, both of you have worked on many well-known films in the past. Uh, how does it feel to slip into the cinema and see a film with the effects that you've done? Can you watch it without seeing the technique? And No. You generally need at least a two-year gap before you even attempt to see it. I see, no, I see I mean, it twice. That's the way I do it. First yeah. time is I can't turn that off, and no, I just yeah. my brain's just going. There's a matte line there, and I don't believe the lighting yeah. on that. And, the, and and if I really love the film, I'm going to go back and go, okay, put that bit of your brain in a box and just watch it. It's very think, very hard to turn it off. Yeah, I think possibly there are some of exceptions. I think Suburbicon because it's not really. A, it's Cohen Brothers and um, was more sort of character-driven and story-driven. And although we created 1950s uh, suburban America, hopefully it was fairly transparent. And actually watching it was able to engage more in the storyline. But generally, a lot of the time, um, it's it's very hard not to be watching a film and just start thinking about, oh, yeah, that was that. Even one that you yeah, That was that on. building that wouldn't render. Like, my scene crashed there and I, like, yeah. lost an hour's work or whatever. <laughs> it's, it's hard to engage. When I started my career in the TV business back in the days, my mum used to tape every single show I worked on just to see my name in the credit <laughs> roll. She was <laughs> proud of me. Uh, um, but those were obviously for your small, obscure <laughs> Swedish TV shows. But how does it feel to to see your name in the credit roll of, of a really 
good big film. It's great. I mean, it's the kind of cherry on on the cake. And especially when I was younger, that was very much something that I envisaged in my head of going, okay, one day I'm going to sit in the cinema in the dark and at the end my name's going to come up and Mm. it's going to be connected to this this thing that I want to do. So it is, it's quite a magical moment the, the first time. Mm. Um, I think my first credit was my first film credit. I think was Enemy of the State, oh. uh, which is a Tony Scott film, which is I still think it's a great film and holds yeah, up to this day. Yeah, and we had a very small crew. I got to meet Tony Scott quite a lot. He was an absolutely super guy. So that was a big moment because that 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 took about. I mean, I'd had this love from childhood, but I'd been really working hard to get into visual effects pretty solidly for about ten years. That little credit was my little present to myself. It was like okay. I made it. Mm. And even though I'd been in the industry for a little bit, something about that name in lights thing is quite a special moment, I think. What do you think, Raf? Yeah, I mean, certainly more so at the beginning. And, uh, yeah, I guess the, like any anything else, the novelty, I mean, it's, it's, it, it, it's always great. It's always good, but yeah, it's certainly more. The first one is the one. Yeah, the first one is wow. Yeah, yeah, my name's up on the big screen, even though it just flies by for about uh, two (laughs) seconds. But you know, it's there, or it's mixed in with about twenty other people. And of course, I mean, you know, there's a whole. If you look at the really massive visual effects-driven movies, there are thousands of names, and unfortunately, there's not always um, an allowance to give credits Mm. for everybody. So, I've certainly worked on a few shows where you have this horrible thing where you've been told that your team's going to get thirty credits and you've had yeah. 150 people working and between you you sort of have to figure out how to do it and it's, yeah. it's not nice no. <laughs> it's yeah. a horrible task but it's the quite, first one is definitely the one that counts yeah. that's, that's the special yeah. one it's quite a it's quite an incentive to be a lead or a vfx supervisor really isn't it because you hopefully will only have about three other people on the same line as well as we there's tactics <laughs> you can there's tactics else. you can use something we've done in the past is that you used to get job description and then name and we a common tactic and this is why you might see this in credits and if you again if you're not in the industry if you see the term digital artists followed by about 10,000 names yeah because you're actually given specific lines in the credit by not having a job description that enables you to put an extra name in so having digital artists and then lots of people means you get loads more people's names up on screen and that's why that's why that exists nobody in our industry refers to somebody else as a digital artist it's just that we we came up with the idea of going well look if we if we umbrella the whole lot we can put loads more people up so let's get as many names as we possibly can and we'll we'll try and get everybody up there's never enough room (laughs) i hope i will see your names in credit rolls for many many years to come (laughs) on many many great projects it's a pleasure to have you here thanks for having us again thank you And you out there, thanks for listening. As usual, you can see clips from the films we talked about at our webpage, goodbyecancerstudios.com. And when Never Look Away arrives at the cinema close to you, well, do go and see it. Next week, we'll dive into a world of shadows, witches and vampires as we look into Goodbye Cancer's VFX production of the new Sky series, A Discovery of Witches. Don't miss it. Normally, I would say Auf Wiedersehen. But to you, sir, I say goodbye. A bientôt. We hope. 